Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a pretty good chance that you ride a bike. And if you ride a bike, there's an even better chance that you use the social networking platform for cyclists and indeed triathletes, Strava. A few days ago, Strava made some pretty big changes to their platform that changed the way their whole model works, and the reactions from around the internet were completely predictable, given the fact that so many are still staying indoors with far too much time on their hands. I find the reactions to be almost comical, and the changes themselves to be unsurprising and frankly, long overdue. If you're wondering what in the world I'm talking about, Strava is, of course, the web-based platform that has more than 50 million users worldwide and allows them all to upload their rides, runs, swims, and even more to compare to their friends and strangers all around the world. Since its inception, Strava has been a free application, and you got quite a bit out of it for nothing. But over time, the company added more and more features in an effort to get users to pay a modest user feed in order to get access to all of the different features they were adding. After all, the company has employees and fixed costs and allows all kinds of third-party applications to leverage their popularity for nothing, so user fees had to sustain all of this. Unfortunately, Strava did too good of a job providing too much for free, and so subscriber numbers never really took off. Well, fast forward to this year, and the folks at Strava were starting to get a little bit antsy about their financial future, or so they say. Whatever the reality is, you can't blame the company for recognizing that they had to make some pretty substantial changes in an effort to try and get their user base to move towards paying for the service. And so, those changes were made quite suddenly and without much warning. Essentially, Strava kept the application free to use, but now only paying users will get access to some of the most popular features that it's known for. For example, segment scoreboards, uh, which, put another way, is how you fare against everyone else on the same piece of road or trail on your bike or on a run. Now, at the same time, Strava severed the ability of hundreds of third-party developers to access their data because that was a means to circumvent the paywall. Now, I'm not a big fan of the manner in which Strava went about this, and I'm not going to defend it. I think they could have been much more PR savvy in how they move forward with these moves, especially when it came to pulling the rug out from under so many software developers all at once. With that said, though, I can completely understand the need for this and don't think the rationale is really all that unreasonable. For all of $60 a year, users get the full suite of tools that Strava offers, including leaderboards, and this is really a pittance. So I get that when you compare paying nothing to now having to pay $60, that can feel like a lot. But the reactions of some who have chosen to pillory the company or cry from the rooftops about how this move is such a, I don't know, a thumbs down choice makes me laugh. Some of these people are the same ones who claim that wearing a mask to protect themselves and others from COVID is somehow infringing on their freedoms, and that behaving in a manner that is conducive to the survival of our species is akin to communism. Well, last I checked, capitalism was defined by commerce, and complaining that you shouldn't have to pay $5 a month while you ride your $5,000 bike seems incongruous with those other statements. So if you aren't a Strava subscriber, I hope that you'll consider it. It's obviously a service that people appreciate, and seems to me one worth supporting with membership. And full disclosure, I've been a Strava paying member for the past five years. On the show today, Michelle Lund is the spokeswoman for BBSC Triathlon, a local company that produces running and multi-sport events in Colorado and Utah. Michelle's in a perfect position to let us all know how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting race organizers who are not just supporters of multi-sport, but also small business owners and operators and are feeling the effects of lockdowns very acutely. Michelle joins me to talk about how they've been coping and what her thoughts are about how to move forward. On Motivation and Isolation, I'm joined by Melissa Yuri. Melissa is a longtime competitor in Ironman and Ultraman, and last year was the first ever woman to conquer the Uberman. With 2020 on hold indefinitely, she shares her perspective on training and maintaining her motivation, as well as gives us some insight into what exactly Uberman is. 
First off, it's time for the second part of the answer to last episode's question about muscle cramps. Now, if you haven't heard part one, I'd recommend going back to episode 38 right now to listen to it because it was there that I addressed the issue and the science behind the theory of electrolyte imbalances and cramps. On this episode, I look at the competing theory behind cramping, the neuromuscular hypothesis. And that's coming up right now. It's time now for the second part of my look into the science of muscle cramps. As you'll recall, on the last episode, I discussed the fact that despite more than 100 years of study, cramping is in fact still very poorly understood. What has been learned over that time is that various things have been learned to not on their own be the culprits. Those things include muscle fatigue, temperature variation, specifically high temperature, and dehydration. What's left, though, are two competing theories that have received the most attention, and specifically in the last 50 years, where a lot of research has gone into these specific theories. Those include electrolyte imbalance and altered neuromuscular control. On the last episode, I dedicated a fair amount of time on electrolyte imbalances and the science behind the investigation as to whether or not electrolytes, specifically sodium, could be the cause of exercise-associated muscle cramps. And as you may remember, most of the evidence comes, or most of the best evidence, comes from 100 years ago in industrial workers. And that despite some studies suggesting that salt solutions decrease cramping, no differences in serum sodium has ever been seen in people who cramp versus those who don't. What can't be determined is whether or not very small differences in intracellular levels, levels of salt right at the muscle membrane, are different in patients or in people who cramp, and therefore whether or not those really microcellular levels of salt can actually have an effect. Furthermore, studies in science have been pretty inconsistent in athletes, and so there's a lot of questions left as to whether or not electrolyte imbalances really are the cause of cramps in, ex in exercise and in athletes themselves. So in the absence of a convincing argument for electrolytes being the cause for cramping, scientists continue to look for another cause. And similar to what we saw with electrolyte theory, the conceptualization of a neuromuscular theory for cramps can be traced back to the early 20th century. In 1911, researchers noted that telegraph operators would develop cramps in their hands when they were communicating messages by Morse code over prolonged periods of time. These so-called telegraphist cramps were initially thought to be fatigue-related and solely because of issues related to the muscles themselves. But there was a group of scientists, specifically neurologists, who postulated that in fact this type of cramping was due rather than problems with the muscles to a problem within the nervous system. These uh, scientists felt that rather than being related to fatigue, such cramps might have been the result of a weakening or breakdown of control of muscle activity at the level of the brain, leading to unopposed excitation in the muscles and subsequent cramping. Well, in the 1980s and 90s, as evidence grew showing that cramping in athletes was seen in the absence of profound sweating or electrolyte disturbances within the serum, researchers again turned to the possibility that a neurological mechanism might be at play and be the actual cause of exercise-associated muscle cramps. More and more observations led to a slowly emerging theory. One in which it was supposed that exercise-associated muscle cramps was ascribed to an abnormality of sustained excitatory motor neuron activity due to an abnormality of excitatory motor neuron control at the spinal level. In other words, there would be highly excitatory signals coming from the spinal, uh, spinal cord and even from above, from within the brain that was causing muscles to have unopposed excitatory messages causing them to contract and contract and eventually cause unopposed contraction, which would lead to cramping. But why this abnormality was occurring was still, for the most part, unknown. In addition, since this was almost always seen in fatigued muscles, what wasn't clear is why wasn't cramping always seen whenever muscles became fatigued? And why were some athletes more prone to cramping than others? In the end, it's believed that fatigue likely plays a role in making a muscle more prone to cramp, but that it's not completely necessary, and that fatigue doesn't cause cramping in everyone. 
What appears to be happening, and it's likely related to fatigue, is that there's both an increase in excitatory neuron activity to the muscle at the same time as normal inhibitory signals are being suppressed. Usually, this results in the muscle being activated when it's already shortened. So, if you picture a muscle, at each end of the muscle body are the tendons, and within the tendons are these little trip switches. These trip switches are essentially detectors that detect when the muscle is being actively contracted. When you send an excitatory message to a muscle to cause the muscle to be contracted, these little trip switches make sure that you don't overdo the muscle contraction. The similar effect happens when a muscle is overstretched. If you overstretch a muscle, the little trip switches can detect that and cause the opposite to occur. They make the muscle then shorten to make sure you don't overstretch a muscle and rupture it. In any case, when a muscle is being contracted, such as being in exercise, these little trip switches send an inhibitory signal back to the spinal cord to turn off the excitation to make sure that the muscle doesn't over-contract. Well, it seems that in states of fatigue, in those people who are prone to cramping, these little trip switches don't seem to work quite as well. And so as a result, the excitatory uh, signals coming from the spinal cord and from above in the brain continue unopposed. And the little trip switches don't send the required negative uh, signals. And so the muscle continues to contract until you get unopposed excitation and a muscle cramp occurs. And one of the more compelling arguments in favor of this theory for cramps was the investigation of a folk remedy. Now, it's not clear when pickle juice was first noted to have an effect on cramping or how it became widely known that it actually works, but it's indisputable that small amounts of pickle juice are potent antidotes for cramping. When researchers have tried to understand why this is the case, they've noted that the ingestion of very small amounts of pickle juice has no effects whatsoever on any measured electrolyte in the blood. And even if it did, the effects of the juice are almost instantaneous, which is far too fast for the effects to be secondary to any chemical changes that can occur from the result of swallowing pickle juice. Now, the authors of these studies looking at pickle juice propose that in the absence of any effect of the ingested juice on circulating electrolyte concentrations, the mechanism by which pickle juice shorten cramp duration must involve activation of receptors in the mouth that triggers some kind of spinal reflux and results in a reduced firing rate of excitatory motor neurons that innervate the affected muscles, the result being stopping the cramp. Now, most recently, there's been some other kinds of products that have been developed that have tried to leverage this effect using small shots of spicy liquids to stimulate transient receptor potential, or TRP, in the mouth and esophagus. TRP receptors form a family of 28 related ion channels that are thought to be important for mediating the sensations of taste and pain. The TRPV1 and TRPA1 channels are stimulated by the active components of spicy foods such as chili peppers or wasabi. Now, there's no doubt that unpleasant or pleasant sensations in the mouth will induce electrical activity in some regions of the brain, and that this activity cascades into the spinal cord. But there are some gaps in the chain of events between stimulation of mouth receptors and the inhibition of activity in motor nerves that make any definitive conclusions about this process a little bit hard to make. And therefore, it's not completely clear that TRP activation necessarily is related to stopping cramps. Still, one of the products out there that uses this pathway to treat and possibly prevent cramps is Hot Shots. Now, full disclosure, I use this product, but I have no relationship with the company and pay full price for any of the product that I use. Hot Shots is exactly what it sounds like. A proprietary blend of spicy ingredients that you swish and swallow either before getting cramps or when they come on. And the idea is, is that by doing so, you activate the TRP in your mouth. It supposedly sends some kind of signal into the brain and spinal cord, which causes a reflex and basically inhibits muscle contraction in impeding any cramps. Now, the website for Hot Shots links to a couple of papers that purportedly demonstrates the efficacy of their product in this regard. But those studies are small and produced by the company itself. Furthermore, they're conducted in the lab and not in real-world athletes, competing in long-distance endurance events. With that said, this small amount of admittedly biased evidence does give some support for hotshots doing what they say it does. But in the absence of any really great studies, I can provide you with my own N of 1 anecdotal evidence gained through a few years of, of using hotshots over events of varying durations and in all kinds of environmental conditions. First off, you should know that I am extremely prone to cramping. 
And finding something that works has been an incredibly long journey involving a lot of research, talking to a lot of manufacturers, and trying a whole bunch of different products. Because cramping has derailed many a well-executed race for me and kept me from having the kinds of results that I would hope for. But I was very hopeful for Hot Shots and had a couple of conversations with their developers. And in fact, I've actually had some success with them, but it's been a bit of a mixed bag. They definitely have helped me avoid cramps when I feel them coming on. And this usually happens for me on the run, usually about halfway through on a half Ironman and a little bit later for a full Ironman because I tend to be running at a different kind of pace. But inevitably, I can feel the tightness happening in my hamstrings, and if I take a hot shot and reduce my effort just a little bit, I can generally get through without cramping. But if I do start cramping, taking a hot shot doesn't really stop them the way it is advertised. And furthermore, because I'm so prone to cramping, I often need to take several hot shots over the course of a half Ironman and even more if it's over the course of a full Ironman. And that becomes a problem because they're incredibly spicy and quite frankly, really difficult to handle if you have to take more than one or two over the course of an event. They just cause incredible discomfort in your mouth and esophagus over time. But after no real benefits from electrolytes, I do now do all my races with hot shots on board and like I said, have had some success with them. So what are you to do? Well, I don't think there's going to be any one thing that's going to help any people or any person get through cramps on their own. I just, based on everything I've read and everything I've experienced myself, taking electrolytes on their own or taking hot shots on their own or any of those other products is simply not going to do it. I think you're going to have to be pretty much multifactorial about this. What I have had success with and what I advocate for my own athletes that I coach is strength training to improve the strength of the muscles that tend to cramp, better endurance training to avoid the kind of fatigue that you tend to see late in a race, improving and really being strict about your form, especially late in a race where things tend to break down and where you can start to have all kinds of stress on muscles that are prone to cramping, maintaining electrolyte intake, especially during the bike, although I really don't think this is likely to be a huge benefit, but it can certainly avoid things like exercise-associated hyponatremia and possibly help with forestalling cramps. And then lastly, some form of TRP stimulator, and that could be pickle juice, it could be hot shots, or it could be any one of the other products out there. I think if you put all of these things together, then you're likely to have some degree of success, especially if you're one of those people like me who's very prone to cramps. Well, what do you do? Are you one of those persons or people who are prone to cramping? I would love to hear what you have had success with and to share it with my listeners. Do you have a question for me to consider uh, answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Over the past couple of months and several episodes of the podcast, I've had the unenviable task of recounting the ever-growing list of race cancellations, and with that, sharing my dismay at what I consider to be the somewhat selfish and callous responses of some who take to social media to rant at race organizers about the lack of refunds. For all of this time, I have strongly advocated on behalf of those organizers, large and small, who are in a terrible position, wanting to do right both by their customers and their employees, and finding themselves very much in the middle of a pandemic that is simply far out of their control. Well, today, I'm really happy to be able to have someone who can give us some insight and perspective from that side of the equation. Michelle Lund is the spokesperson and face of BBSC Endurance Sports. She also coordinates events, designed the logo, is packet pickup coordinator, announcer, and much more. She and her husband, Brent Heron, own BBSC triathlons and have had the hardships of letting the staff go in March due to COVID-19. Well, today she's taken some time out of her day to join me on the TriDoc podcast, and I'm really happy to have her here. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So, Michelle, uh, this is tough times, uh, tough times for triathletes who are finding themselves without motivation, without a finish line, really, to look forward to. Give us a sense of how this has affected your company. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's been a couple months now where we've really had to navigate um, this new territory of um, the world and what's going on. And we have had, unfortunately, some event cancellations. Um, we did have a triathlon in Las Vegas, Nevada, which we did have to, um, we postponed it 
And what we're doing is we are postponing events because we're allowing our athletes who are, you know, participants of these events that are postponed to transfer their race entries into the next year. So um, the athletes that were affected by the Rage Triathlon, the athletes that were affected by the Sand Hollow Triathlon, they now have a 2021 entry to look forward to um, for the next year. So, you know, we we did have to go back into our books and really look and, and see what we could do for our athletes. Um, you know, we cherish our community. They are our lifeblood and, you know, they're affected just like us. And, and we want to be able to, you know, take care of these guys, um, that have really supported us throughout the years. So we think, um, we have one of the best transfer policies in the industry right now. Um, just kind of seeing what other companies are doing and, and by allowing, athletes to have that full credit to look forward to, um, for the next year. I think that is, um, one of the things that people have really gotten behind us and have supported us on. One of the things that I have kind of said over and over again, and trying to respond to athletes who complain about not getting a refund is that, you know, the money that is spent on uh, a race entry fee is money that tends to be spent. It's not money that race organizers are sitting on. You guys have spent money on getting uh, permits, getting uh, goodie bags together, things like that. Um, what do you say to people about, um, you know, hey, I want my money back. I don't want to cancel. I don't want to defer. I don't want to hear about other dates. I mean, how, how do you rationalize the fact that people can't just have their full fee back? I mean, what, what's the logistics involved? Absolutely. I mean, as an event company, we're not just t-shirts and finisher medals. Like a lot of people think we have fixed costs. We do have those permitting fees. We have a payroll for our amazing employees that work year round to set up these events and get them ready to go. You know, we have vendors, um, that we have, you know, payments to make to and, and everything like that. And so, you know, I think we have had, you know, things that have happened in the past, um, that have really prepared us for this. We've had government shutdowns that have affected our races. We've had forest fires that actually have affected our races. And so what we stand behind is our waivers and our policy. So we do have a policy that is on our website, is on the registration form that says, you know, no matter what circumstances we face, um, there is going to be no refunds. But we do have a very flexible transfer policy. We do have a very flexible deferment policy. So with when someone does sign up for our event, they go into it reading those waivers and reading those policies and knowing that this is our policy um, no matter what happens. And so that is something that we stand behind and, and hope everyone can understand um, in, in this time. One of the things I've heard uh, recently, people are starting to say, well, why don't event organizers have insurance policies against this kind of thing? And, uh, you know, what I have said is, look, uh, you can have all the insurance you want. Most insurance policies are not reimbursing travel costs right now if you have to if you have to cancel because of COVID. I mean, this is not an acceptable um this is not an acceptable reason to recoup your costs if you have to cancel. Uh, I would assume that would be the same for event organizers. But the bigger question is, exists, and I think it's reasonable, is there such a thing as event cancellation insurance, just for not for COVID, obviously, but for other reasons, uh, weather, for example, or other things, to cover your costs as an event organizer? So sure, there are uh, different kind of event, event uh, cancellation insurances um, that events can have. Um, we're lucky enough to partner with USAT, which is the USA triathlon um, governing body. And um, they really do support us. Um, what I have found out from other event directors and event organizers is that certain event insurance policies have actually removed um viruses and such from their insurance after the swine flu happened a few years ago. They've even removed uh, terrorist um, threats as um, an event cancellation insurance coverage um, after the Boston Marathon. So what's really interesting is these insurance companies are kind of taking away some of these things that you know could happen to an event to cancel it. Another complaint that is often heard is why can't these uh, race organizers tell me further out as to what's going on and what are you doing to try and find out whether or not your races can go ahead and how are you keeping yourselves and your athletes informed? Absolutely. You know, 
We are working closely with the Boulder Reservoir Parks Department because a majority of our upcoming races are being held in Boulder this summer. Um, so we're working closely with them. We're listening to the guidelines of the city and state day by day. I mean, the nature of the beast is things are changing daily. And so that's really, um, we're reading the latest news updates. We're contacting the people that know the most um, in this time. And, and we're really making decisions based on the science, based on the facts, and based on what the government tells us is okay. And right now, what we're dealing with is, you know, Boulder County, um, as a city and as a county, they have canceled events up until June 15th. So anything after June 15th right now is kind of up in the air. It's a case-by-case basis. They're going to be making decisions whether or not these events are going to be safe or not. So what we as a organization are doing we're sitting down, we're coming up with a plan. We're saying if we could have a race, you know, as late as late June, how can we make our events safe for every single participant? How can we ensure the health of every single person that shows up to our events? How can we promote social distancing at a triathlon? Is it possible? And what we're coming up with is, you know, three pages of, you know, all the things that we, we could potentially implement into an event to make it safe. And, and the reality is, is that the nature of triathlons is going to change. You know, this is unprecedented times. We plan to show our resilience and our adaptability by adjusting these events moving forward because, you know, there's going to be a new normal and we're, we're going to be prepared for that. We want to be the model. Let's explore that because there was an interesting article in the New York Times uh, about a week ago that talked about exactly that, talked about the future of endurance sports and how things were going to have to look different, but didn't really get into any specifics. And I have my own thoughts about how things could be managed in a way to try and keep people safer. I think about, you know, some of these big WTC events. I mean, those are obviously, you know, I, I mean, on the plus side, you're dealing with a mostly healthy group that's showing up and low risk sort of, you know, uh, but you've got a lot of spectators, you've got a lot of volunteers. So, so what in your mind, what are some of the salient features that you have on that three page proposal to try and keep the athletes and try and keep the event a little bit different that would maybe allow it to go forward in this new sort of environment? Absolutely. Well, I could go on and on, but we do have some pretty good um, arguments for why, um, these outdoor events should still be able to take place. And, you know, we're lucky enough to not be like WTC in the sense that we have 3000 participants showing up on race day. We are a smaller scaled endurance event company. So we have anywhere from 500 to, you know, up to a thousand people that are going to be at our events. Um, the first thing we think about is transition area. Transition area is the place where everyone's kind of congregating and gathering and, and, within that six feet distance. And so, you know, we counted how many bike racks we have. We said, how much space do we have in the transition area? Can we have people six feet apart in transition area? And, and that's one of our biggest goals is, you know, if we want these races to take place in the future, how can we keep these people six feet apart? Um, in, in those stagnant times when people are preparing their bikes in the morning, when people are all in transition area after the swim, um, and so that's something that we're really looking at is how do we, you know, expand transitionary and keep it as big as possible. Um, we're looking at the essential volunteers, um, you know, definitely requiring masks and gloves for all staff and, and volunteers moving forward. How do we keep every surface that's highly traffic disinfected? Um, everything like that and everything from, you know, the mass wave starts to maybe a rolling start, you know, spreading out the start times, lengthening the event. Um, and really decreasing the amount of aid stations that people are, you know, interacting next to. Maybe we require people to carry their own fuel and carry their own water on the course just to keep, you know, that exchange of liquids and, and fueling at a minimum. So really we are looking at all possibilities, um, 
And I could go on for probably two more hours about what else we've been thinking of. No, that's great. I mean, uh, those kinds of ideas coming from grassroots organiz- organizers like yourself, and I'm sure, uh, have you had conversations with uh, other organizers in the area? We've had, or I've had Lance Panagudi on the show uh, previously. Uh, he's a big organizer in the area. Have you spoken with him or any other organizers to try and uh, kind of uh, brainstorm around other ways to, to try and do this safely and to try and convince cities that uh, this is something that can happen? Yes. So uh, me personally, I have not been in contact with other race directors, but I know my race director, um, Cedric Kepler, has been in talks with some of his um, friends in the event industry. Me personally, I'm looking at everyone's policies online and on their websites and in seeing, you know, those people that are introducing new races and saying that these races are going to take place in the future, what are they telling their athletes um, just to get an idea of, you know, what what do people want to hear? What can you make available in the public versus kind of keep to yourselves and only work, you know, side by side with those cities and counties to make sure that the event is going to be safe for everybody. And we do want to be reassured. We want to be reassuring for all of our athletes that are still registering for our events. Um, and oh boy, do we appreciate the people that that are hopeful and registering for the events right now because they're the ones that are supporting us and keeping us going. Um, but we do want to make sure that the plan is solid before we release any of that information, um, just in case anything changes in the meantime. Well, that's great. I mean, I really like encourage to hear that kind of optimism. Obviously that's uh, what you need to, to keep, you know, sort of front of mind. Um, what does the kind of worst case scenario look like in your mind? Uh, I mean, that's obviously best case scenario is that things will be up and running sort of end of June, at least in some way. Uh, what does the worst case scenario look like? You know, worst case scenario for us is if events continue to be canceled, you know, for every race that is, postponed for us and moved to 2021. Um, you know, it, it does, we do take a hit, um, revenue wise. Um, another worst case scenario for us is if there was a capped amount of people, um, for each event. So for example, you know, if 250 people was the max amount of people that could participate in an event, it would really be hard for us to even break even at that point. And we'd really have to do some thinking, um, you know, because we're used to, 500 plus events. Although, you know, by laws of supply and demand with the pent up demand at this point, uh, 250, you could probably rationalize price increases to to get the, the 250 who really wanted to be there. <laughs> I'm guessing people would understand the increased prices to try and participate. Uh, that would unfortunately create a bit of a meritocracy, which I'd hate to see in the sport. But I mean, let's face it, if that's what has to happen, although if that came to pass, um, I wonder if the cities would allow for more events. Um, maybe, you know, just thinking outside the box, maybe, you know, you, maybe they would allow for two events on the same day of 250 people. So you have one in the morning and then one in the evening so that you could space things out. Absolutely. And, and that's definitely something we're considering because we're considering all options. But you know, it's another thing to think about permitting costs and the, for example, swim support. If we're having two events in one day, that's double the swim support, that's double the bike support, and that's double the run support. Um, and so we really do have to think about, you know, how many volunteers are we really going to be able to get um, during this time? You know, who's going to be willing to volunteer their time and risk, you know, a little bit um, to be able to be there and supporting all these athletes. Um one of the one of the things I'm beginning to hear from athletes is that they're concerned about participating in any race that has a swim because they haven't been able to train for the swim. Um, I, I I understand that. I think that's potentially overblown a little bit. I think most people who've participated in a triathlon at some point are going to be able to manage a swim. It may not be their fastest swim time, but they should be able to complete it. Uh, obviously, if we're talking about Ironman distance, I guess we could you know quibble about that, but. What's your response to people who, you know, I mean, have you considered shortening swim distances? Is that something on your radar at all? So um, we actually have a duathlon for every single one of our events. And this is something that we allow people to switch to the duathlon up until the day before the race. And we've always allowed this. So um, if anyone is concerned about the swim, 
you know, we just say, Hey, what do you think about the duathlon? Because that is available to you. Um, and it's absolutely free to, to switch at any point in time. You don't feel comfortable doing the swim. Yeah. And I just want to, you know what, I I've participated at a lot of the local organizers. Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned Lance Panagudi, he's been on here before and I've been on in his, several of his events, always well run BBSC, same thing. Uh, I'm always amazed how many events you have going at the same time. Uh, sprint, Olympic, 5K run, 10K run, and duathlon. And they're all going, and they all go off without a hitch. And it's incredibly well organized. And so I have to say, uh, for any of my listeners uh, right now, uh, you have events across three different states, correct? It's uh, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah? Yes, we do. We have different things going on in three different states. You know, we start our race season in Las Vegas. Um, in April, we kind of moved to Utah in May, and then all summer, we're in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. And then um, when it starts cooling down in, in the Colorado high country, we go back to Utah and Las Vegas to end the season. And, you know, I think our staff is very well versed in putting on different races all at once. You know, we're, we've been doing this for 10 plus years and we've even added aqua bikes into the mix as well. So, you know, just add one more in there and it really gives people, um, that are coming in because we cater to beginners and amateurs and people just, you know, when they hear the word triathlon, they kind of, you know, freak out and say, you know, that sounds really hard. But when you have all these other options for people that are just getting into the sport and just getting into training, you know, they're able to choose something that might seem a little bit easier than necessarily an Olympic distance triathlon. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, really what I want to highlight is, again, this flexibility that you as a small race organizer have to be novel like this and to think outside the box and be able to put on those kinds of events. And so, uh, you know, we cannot afford to lose that as we come out of this. And so uh, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of continuing to bring your business to these local race organizers, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, you have small race organizers who are going to be hurting. And so uh, whatever you may feel about lack of refunds and inflexibility about, uh, postponements and cancellations and however you might feel about how things are going please remember your local race organizers are suffering just like you are probably much worse um and uh they're the ones who are going to make this industry come back and so um uh michelle thank you so much for everything uh, you are, are doing to keep the sport moving forward and uh will really be uh, you know instrumental in bringing it back Absolutely. We look forward to the days when we're back on the start line and, and, you know, shooting off that gun and, and, you know, putting on events again. I am just so looking forward to that day. And I, and I hope our athletes are too. Yeah. Oh, I can guarantee you the pent up uh, frustration and uh, anticipation is very, very high. In fact, that's one of the things I worry about is that people will almost forego the, you know, the, you know, I was asked recently, if races come back, will I go? And uh, it's a question that I have, I'm not able to answer right now, because I recognize the danger to getting together in large uh, crowds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm going to have to see and, and, I, and hearing the fact that you guys are thinking ahead, and thinking about how you want to mitigate risk to athletes makes brings me a, a level of comfort that I have to say uh, is very reassuring. So thank you for that. Uh, Michelle Lund is uh, a uh, spokesperson and is the face and now the voice of BBSC Endurance Sports. She, along with her husband, uh, Bruce Heron, run the company, and uh, I am very much looking forward to getting back to one of their events, hopefully later this year, and if not, then certainly early next year. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc Podcast today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Melissa Yuri is joining me today, and she has a very accomplished resume in the sport of uh, both triathlon and ultramans. She is a six-time Ironman. She has completed three different ultramans and something called an Uberman, which she will tell us all about. She's done the Epic Five, which is five different Ironmans on five different days on five different islands in Hawaii, and has uh, done more things that more people would consider crazy than I would like to think 
think about. For 2020, she had a race planned in Samoa in August. Uh, not completely confident that it will be going ahead. Uh, has not been cancelled just yet, but uh, like everybody else in the world is dealing with uh, the uncertainty that accompanies the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, for now, though, she's taking some time out to join me on the TriDoc podcast. And Melissa, thank you so much for being here to talk about motivation and training during this time of quarantine. No worries, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So, yes. Mel, um, you know, uh, things are just really, I know you guys in Australia are sort of behind us in the United States, and we're behind uh, much of Asia in terms of where we are with this pandemic. But I know that you know, you've heard about a lot of race cancellations, and that's a kind of a gut punch. Um, how are you managing with uh, your motivation? How are you maintaining it in this time of uncertainty? It's been it's been really interesting, actually. Like I'm sure, like everybody else, I've had my moments. I've had my moments of what am I even doing? What are, why am I even training at the moment? But I had oh, it's kind of like a bit of a light bulb moment when I went for a run on Saturday, actually, because we're still allowed to run outside at the moment. Um, everything I'm kind of saying is at the moment, at the moment, because I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if we're going to be put into lockdown in the future or what is actually going to happen. But I was running along and I thought to myself about why I started sport in the first place, not why I started triathlon, because that came a couple of years after I started, you know, wanting to get into fitness and wanting to, you know, do a bit more and be more active. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, why did you start way back then? And it was after I'd finished university, I was about to start full-time training, full-time work. And I, I remember thinking like, it was because I wanted to lose weight. I wanted a stress relief and, you know, I wanted to do something that was enjoyable. And then triathlon as I said came a couple of years after that and I thought to myself well that's a really good reason now to continue because you know you want to be strong you want to be healthy you know you need it as a stress relief especially at this time of uncertainty and anxiety and you know everyone's just freaking out about everything so I kind of brought it back to that and I just went well if I'm not training for a race, because I kept telling myself, you know, I'm a triathlete, I like to race, I like to race, that's my motivation. I'm like, well, actually, is it? And I really kind of brought it back and went, mm, it actually can be something else at the moment. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it now. And that's been a recurrent sort of theme in talking to different people is kind of refocusing on why we do this. Uh, you know, the medals, the finish line is obviously very important and very motivational, but it's not really the main reason. A lot of us got into this for different reasons, and, and you've really got right to that right away. And I, I, I think that's super important, and I think it's really good that you highlight that right from the get-go. Um, have you made uh, or have you had to make any major modifications to your training so far? Yeah, so the swimming pools have been closed. There is a couple that are still open around me. Um, as of today, we've had a lot more restrictions placed on us, so I don't know how much longer they're going to be open. And I don't know, I wasn't feeling entirely confident about going to the pool anyway. I was like, well, you know, is that really socially responsible? Should I be doing that? So instead... I met up with a couple of friends and we all stayed, you know, our current regulations is one and a half metres away from each other. So we're all very spread out, kind of talking from a distance, but did a swim in the ocean on the weekend. And that was, that was pretty amazing. It's going to be a little bit too cold to get in the ocean soon, but I think now is okay to still, you know, get in there, a couple of swim caps, wetsuit, and I'm, I'm okay with that. So that's a, a modification, but I mean, everything else, you know, I've had a treadmill at home for a while now and I do a lot of sessions on the bike trainer. So overall, not too affected except for the swimming. That's that's going to be pretty massive. And then as of today, my gym has closed, but it's a nice little family gym and they're amazing. And they just said, come in, grab a much a bunch of equipment, whatever you want, whatever you need, and then we can set up at-home programs for you. So I went in this morning and I got a lot more than I actually thought um, they were going to give me. So that was that was pretty amazing as well. So yeah, I think just the um, the swimming aspect will be a big change. But apart from that, um, I'm very, very lucky. I, I consider myself to be, wow, to that, be one of the that, lucky ones. Yeah, that's an amazing yeah. story about your local yeah. gym. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Now you train mostly for ultramans, right? That your long run and long running races. 
Yeah, Ultraman, Epic 5, Overman, all these super, super long ones. But I have to say, again, I'm extremely fortunate because this year has always been a bit of a down year for me. Like I didn't have anything epically massive planned anyway. So the recent um, Samoa, however we're pronouncing it, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's definitely going to be a lot a lot shorter than what um, I originally have done. So if I am not able to do that, I don't feel like it's, you know, a massive, like this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing that I could do like some of my other races that I have done in the past. Okay. And uh, will you have to, do you foresee having to shift a lot of your running onto the treadmill? And, and will that be a significant burden if they have to be really long runs? It'll be a mental mental push, definitely. I'm definitely not used to doing a lot of my long runs on the treadmill. I'm used to doing more speed work or strength work or things like that. So, yes, that will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you just make compromises where you have to. Like, everyone has to stay healthy and, you know, we need to be able to protect each other. So, if that's a sacrifice I have to make, then I don't really feel like it's that bad in the big scheme of things. And I have to say, there's a um, a Facebook group that's just recently been started about people doing ultras indoors. So you're hearing all these stories about people running marathons on their balconies and around their lounge rooms. <laughs> it's actually um it's actually quite incredible to see that people are like, you know what, this is not going to stop me. I'm still going to get my long runs in. So that's that's pretty impressive. So I again, I've got a treadmill. I'm not going to be doing laps around my <laughs> around my lounge room. So I'm okay. Yeah, I the um. The spirit of people and the uh, perseverance really through all of this has really been amazing. And I have to say, you know, as much as people can be down on social media, and there's a good reason to be down on social media, it really is in these kinds of moments that you'll find so many good things on there that can really keep you going and and really uplifting uh, those kinds of stories. Uh, the guy who ran the marathon on his balcony was was quite quite amazing. I mean, wow, just back yeah. and forth for well, I can't. I think it was like six thousand laps he had to do back and forth on his balcony it was quite impressive yeah um yeah. it's it's amazing what people if they if there's a will there's a way that's more true right. now than ever yeah uh have you thought about modifications for your training to deal with the lack of a swim are you going to uh do any dry land stuff or do you think you'll just focus more on running and biking yeah no so my coach already thought ahead about that because there was some pools that were closing in the states before australia and she coaches a lot of a lot of international athletes so they'd already said all right go get some stretch cords i've kind of made a modification on you know my own ones because i actually got rid of my stretch cords a few months ago thinking i'd never use them i don't need them (laughs) oops so i yeah just went down to local hardware store got some cord got um, a couple of bits of tube and that's that's good enough for me so i have done that and i still will continue to do that because I I love swimming. I've actually made some decent gains in the pool recently, so I don't really want to lose that as much as possible. So yeah, I I definitely still want to want to keep that fitness going. Yeah. What do you miss most about like, you know, or not about, but what do you miss most since, you know, this all started? I think for me it's the socialization aspect of my training because I I do a lot by myself, but it's the, you know, rides that I can do with friends and catch up and just that face-to-face contact and even just like giving someone a hug like that just, I don't know, there's something about that that just makes you feel good and I feel a bit sad that I can't do that at the moment with my friends. So yeah, but there's, it has, it has been in some ways also quite nice because a lot of people have been sending a lot of messages, checking in on each other, seeing how you're going, you know, doing doing a lot of that really community work, which is, which has also been quite lovely. You know, the, the amount of measures I've been sending and getting each day and, you know, everyone's like, okay, so today's a new day. How are we going? How are we coping? What's happening? It's yeah, it's been nice. And it's just that face-to-face contact. I'm, I'm kind of wishing that I had more of. Yeah. What suggestions do you have for other people who are dealing with this right now to keep their motivation up and to keep their training going? I think, I mean, one thing that I I always do whenever I'm racing and if ever I have any kind of down moments and, you know, in my race and I'm like, oh, I don't feel great is I actually don't try and force myself out of it. I just sit with it and go, yes, this feels uncomfortable. Yes, this is hard. What can I do to, you know, make this situation better? 
And that's what I've been doing this time around as well. Like, you know, if I'm having moments where I'm just feeling a bit crap and I'm feeling a bit like, oh, this sucks, I don't like this, this is, you know, an uncomfortable situation or, you know, whatever it is, then I allow myself to kind of wallow for a bit and not be like, no, I have to be positive, I have to be positive because I just find that that, I don't know, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> so, you know, I'll I'll sit with it, I'll talk to people about it, I'll, you know, like write to my coach and just go, look, you know, I'm kind of struggling at the moment and then I know it's going to pass. Like every feeling that you have, good, bad, otherwise will pass. So that's kind of what what I do to, to kind of manage that. And, I mean, I it, it is hard. It is very, very hard to sit with that uncomfortable feeling, but that's, that's just sometimes what you do. And, you know, if you need to take a day just to, you know, mope around, then do it and then, you know, make sure it doesn't turn into three, four, five days, you know, get back and, and do something that you know you're going to feel good for doing. So that would... I think that would be my my advice, you know, just even if it's at a decrease, low decrease of intensity, decrease time, whatever it is, as long as you're doing something, then that'll that'll definitely help with you mentally as well. The excellent suggestions, really. I, th- I want to highlight them because, you know, giving yourself permission to be upset and to, you know, not feeling guilty for being upset because, yes, it's it's really I mean, let's face it, it sucks right now. And it sucks for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And it's so easy to feel guilty, you know, for feeling bad about something like, oh, I'm not motivated. And, you know, you could easily get into this trap where, you you know, you don't validate your own feelings. Well, the fact of the matter is, is like, yes, it can suck on a whole bunch of levels, but you can still feel bad about, you know, not being motivated. And, and that's okay. Um, and then the other thing that you said about, you know, if you're not into it today, don't, don't feel bad about taking the day off. It's okay. And uh, just yeah. come back to it tomorrow. So really, really great suggestions. And I, I, I thought it was important to, to, you know, highlight them because I think they're excellent. Um, w- what are your fears sort of going forward, both personally and also for the sport? Um, I think personally, like I, I know a lot about how infectious disease work. And I think my biggest fear is that, everyone will get quite complacent and then we'll have a resurgence of the virus. So that's, that's kind of something that's just sitting in the back of my mind. And I'm like, I just really hope that once, you know, the, the curve's down and it's on its downtrend that everyone doesn't just go, oh, well, it's over now, we're good, you know, and take the, you know, take the precautions off. I think that we really do need people in power to be very mindful and very aware of that and still make sure that we do have some kind of restrictions around what we're doing until we are you know, have a vaccine, have, you know, whatever, whatever we need for this at this point in time. Um, and I think for the sport, I, I, I have, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people about, you know, things like Ironman and Kona and, you know, all these, all these different things. And, you know, how a lot of people are just saying, well, Kona's a write-off this year, like how you're actually going to be able to have people qualify. And I think that's going to be quite a sad moment for the sport and losing a lot of local races because, you know, race directors can't afford to ride this period of time out because, you know, if that's their only income and they're not putting on races, they're not getting any income, I think that's going to be that's going to be quite sad as well. So it's, it's so hard because it's so um, t- not time limited because we don't know how long this is going to last for. And if this lasts for 6, 12 months, like who knows, it could so then, you know, a lot of people, their livelihoods are going to be going because races are not happening. And so I think that'll be that'll be quite a sad, a sad time for a lot of people. So, yeah, those are kind of my biggest worries about, you know, the world and, and triathlon in general. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, this is a tectonic shift, I think, for the economy in general and for businesses and triathlon's not immune. Even the biggest companies, mm. you know, WTC is not immune from this. Um, yeah. How are you managing emotionally through all of this? Um, up and down, I think like everybody, like I'll definitely have my moments, um, you know, lying in bed last night, I was, I was thinking about, you know, I don't, I don't have grandparents. They all passed away a long time ago. So I don't have any kind of elderly immediate family that I need to be worried about. But I mean, my parents are in their sixties, like they're, you know, definitely part of the risk factor. And, you know, you just, I have had moments where, you start to escalate with your anxiety You're like well what if this happens and that happens and that happens and that happens and oh my god and you know it's it's it is tough but 
I guess for me, the biggest way that I manage is by talking to people and, as, as I said before, like, you know, by sitting with it, sitting with the uncomfortable, knowing it will pass. Um, I do meditation every day and that really helps me to be able to kind of let those feelings pass through and not hang on to them and, you know, become really overwhelmed by it. And, yeah, I guess, you know, reaching out to people in my community and, and talking to them and trying to help people who are in worse off situations than I am. I mean, like, I my job's very secure. That's not going to go anywhere. But I know a lot of people who are dependent small business owners on people and suddenly their industries have just been wiped out. So I'm kind of trying to check in and say, what can I do? How can I help you? How can I support you? And I find that kind of helps take us a, take the focus off me, at least for that period of time. Hmm. Um. I want to finish on a more positive note and uh, just ask, uh, tell us a little bit about Uberman. That just sounds really fascinating. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this is my like massive race that I did last year. It was in October last year. So it's a 34-kilometer swim. I talk in kilometers, not miles, by the way, Um, from Catalina Island across to the mainland in California, across the Palos Verdes. And then the bike ride was... 640k so we rode from there through to Badwater Basin and then you do the Badwater Run course so it's from um, Badwater Basin up to the Mount Whitney portal which is 216 kilometer run and it took me five days 15 hours and 55 minutes so yes that was that was my crazy adventure last year so just tell me so the swim which is about a 21 to 22 miles uh so you do that and then you get out of the water and get right on your bike or is this like how does this work no i ended up uh, so i did a 20k swim uh two years ago and after that i felt really woozy and my head was all over the place so i said to my crew and i made like my husband and I, he's crewed for me a bunch of times before, so we made plans for every possible scenario, basically. And so we said, okay, so if you get out feeling like that, you're going to have to sleep. And also, you know, I started at 10 o'clock at night, so I was going to be awake all night, and then trying to deal with LA traffic was on the bike straight away. I'm like, no, thank you. So I ended up sleeping for about two hours and then got on Oh, the well, you know, two hours, sw- two hours sleep, yeah. I totally yeah. refreshed. <laughs> I know. I, I really was. I was like, okay, we're good to go now. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. and then you get on your bike and then how long did you ride before you took another break? Uh, I rode probably about eight hours, I think, maybe a little bit less. And then I had a, oh, I laid down for about an hour, about nine o'clock at night um, because I just wanted to get off the bike and I tried to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. And then I continued and rode through till about 4 a.m. and then slept, I think it was for about another two hours at that point, and then got back on the bike about 7, 7.30 um, in, the, in the next day. And then, yeah, continued continued on like that. Wow. Yes. So how many yeah. days did it take to do the ride? Uh, it was, hang on, I know there's 51 hours. So, 51 yeah, just over hours. two days. Okay. Mm. And then you finish the ride and the run, you, you said it's a bad water course, but that doesn't really mean yes. a whole lot to me. So how, how is that a okay. 50K? Uh, what is that? Oh, you know, you said no, it was 200. 214 Ks. Okay, that's uh, legitimately yeah. insane after doing everything else. <laughs> uh, agreed. Yeah, yes. and that took you how long? That took, I guess, two more days. Uh, yeah, two and a half. It took me 64 hours wow. to do that. Yeah, yeah. Very impressive. Yeah, I was, um, I was walking a decent amount, like running bits, and then sleeping for longer periods of time as well. And we really tried to get me out of the heat of the day to sleep as well because – it wasn't the crazy, crazy temperatures you get during the Badwater Marathon, which is in July, but it was still in Fahrenheit, like probably mid to high 90s, so it was still quite hot. Um, so I tried to do as much running at nighttime and in the morning as possible and kind of sleep in that middle of the middle afternoon period of the day. And when did you do the Epic Five? Uh, that was a year and a bit before it. Okay. Sorry, hang on, 2019. Yeah, 2018 in May. All right. Well, uh, Melissa, I, I hope 17. I hope that uh, you can be convinced to come back, uh, uh, come back on the podcast and tell us about that because that I definitely want to hear more about. 
<laughs> uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I did Epic Five in 2017. I get my years confused. Um, yes. No. Absolutely. I love talking about that race because it was just so much fun. It's, it, <laughs> it sounds. Uh, it sounds appropriately named Epic. Uh, Melissa Yuri is a triathlete, Ultraman, Uberman, uh, and pretty much everything in between. Who lives in Melbourne, Australia? She is uh, preparing for a race in either Samoa or Samoa. We will find out and get back to you on that. Uh, that is scheduled for August. We're hopeful it will go on. Uh, until then, she's going to be modifying her training in all of the ways that she mentioned to us today. Melissa, thank you so much for being here on the TriDoc Podcast. No problems at all. Thank you. And good luck with your training as well. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. Hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question to answer, and I'll have an interview with another local race organizer. Lance Panagudi has been on the podcast before and is the owner of Without Limits, a local organizer of several triathlons. He'll be here to talk about the impact of the pandemic and his vision for a way forward once lockdown restrictions lift and allow for it. I'll also have another episode of Motivation and Isolation. But until then, train hard, train healthy.